Here, here we go. <laughs> ah, what is wrong with us? I don't know. It's we just that, have, that that uh, I, that first question threw us off. Yeah. We shouldn't have breaks for lunch. This is Four Friends Fight About Film, a podcast about movies and things more important than movies, if we ever find any. Nice to be back in the saddle again. Oh, I was going to do that. We all were going to tell the same joke. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know any other Western sayings. Hop on that train. You know what? I really (laughs) don't think that's not one of them. I really miss you guys since last week. It's great to be back together. That was crazy. Man, the longest week of my life. Well, (laughs) (laughs) that's enough witty banter. Today we will be talking about Western films, our favorite Westerns. So to kick us off, say your name and what would your Dances with Wolves name be? In case you don't realize, that's a reference to the film Dances with Wolves, in which his name in the film was Dances with Wolves. Uh, this is Lance. Mine would be Break Dances with Wolves. Because I'm known for my hip hop. No, you're, good. no you're not. That's all. That's mostly what I'm known for. You're also no. known for being friends with lots of wolves. <laughs> I don't get the. Okay. My name is Hudson. Mine would be parties with Gibbies. We're really off on this episode <laughs> so far. <laughs> yep. Well, it's not going to get any better with mine because I'm Jordan and mine would be lap dances with wolves. <laughs> <laughs> We're all just telling the same joke. <laughs> <over again. laughs> my joke was different. Yeah. Gibby, what's yours? This is Kyle, the Gibster Gibson, and my name would be. Podcasts with buds. Oh, that's sweet. sweet. Yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> All of this All right, is lame. I think we should probably record, a, record a backup <laughs> question for this because it's real bad. All right. We asked you guys a while back to name some of your favorite Westerns, and we were overwhelmed with the comments and responses. So thank you for being involved. I'll kick us off here. This is Scott Stafford. The Searchers, Tombstone, Unforgiven, Maybe Pale Rider. The new true grid is up there. I consider no country a Western, and it's obviously fantastic. Love you, Scott, but <laughs> no, it's not obvious. Maybe Pale Rider? Pale Rider's on the fence. He seems on the Maybe fence. I thought about Pale Rider for my list. I always think about Pale Rider. I can't stop thinking about <laughs> really? it. No. We'll, talk about, right we'll talk about a couple of these today. Not Pale Rider. Not Pale Rider. Tombstone we've already covered. Yep. Otherwise, it would be here today, I would imagine. Uh, Lance, you want to do uh, Kevin Miller here? Yeah. Hostels, Coen Brothers' version of True Grit. Godless. He's, is he saying that the Coen Brothers' version of True Grit is I, Godless? I was unclear on that too like it yeah. doesn't have god in it which is accurate i guess i never saw it yeah. so i don't know um no i think godless is another movie i haven't seen it uh, no. well it's a series maybe it's just a long form series is it, it is a ongoing? jeff daniels on yeah. netflix, netflix series, series. Uh, hostel's great choice kevin miller we may not talk about it today but it's an excellent film and yeah you almost picked worth it, watching you? yeah i really yeah. did uh jordan you want to take this next one hanoon <laughs> zakuria burkunaro and el top el what are you doing el topa uh, <laughs> who said this, Jordan? Brian Kish. Well, you should apologize to Brian. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry, Brian. I'm feeling weird. <laughs> I can tell. Oh, what are you yeah, doing? Um, Broken Arrow is not the... Uh, that's not a Western, really. It takes place no, it, in the Western part of the United States. I don't think it's the John Woo one. There is one yeah, from the 40s or 50s. Yeah, it's not the John oh, oh, It has oh, Arrow. I mean, Arrow's pretty... Yeah, yeah Arrow's definitely Western. What? Well, not the show. <laughs> you mean the concept of an Arrow? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess. But what's that have to do with the movie? 
Anyway. Woo. Uh, um, all right. This last one is from Sylvain Fernandez. The obvious would be the Dollars Trilogy. Less obvious since you're not average Western is Dead Man. Also, Bone Tomahawk. <laughs> Have you guys seen Bone Tomahawk? No, I I've thought heard about it's it. Awesome. It's really good, and man, it is brutal. Uh, it's got yeah, one. Of, it's got like one of the most disturbing scenes I've ever seen in a movie, and it. it's it's a really good film. I almost watched it just to see if it'd be something I'd pick. Uh, I couldn't even watch the. I don't know if you would or not. It's but it's got a really good cast too. It's got Kurt Russell. It's mm-hmm. got Patrick Wilson, and it's got uh, Matthew Fox. It's oh. kind of an interesting grouping. What did you guys consider when making this list? Any uh, any tips for picking great westerns? I realized in the process of this that I don't think I actually like westerns that much <laughs> like, like if you'd asked me a month ago hey jordan do you like westerns i'd be like yes westerns are awesome i just don't think i like them that much i'd say i like the idea of westerns more than i like westerns but it's a weird idea it's such a small period of time that we've this is, built this huge genre out of this is what i was going to talk about a little bit it's a it's it's strange as a genre like it's mm-hmm. really kind of more of a subgenre if you think about it because genres are usually going to be tied to an emotion like horror is fear yeah. comedies laughter dramas you know they're they're all the kind of their own emotion this is set to a very specific geographical place mm-hmm. in a very specific time frame of like a 40 year period. Yeah. And yet you don't see genres about like Manhattan in the 1920s. But you might like samurai films. Like that would be yeah, a But genre. I think that's yeah. a much wider time period than than the 40 years of like during the Civil War. Yeah. I'm just saying it, it's it's you're right, but you also wouldn't go into like I mean back when they had video stores and see like a samurai section, but you would yeah. see a western right. section. That's true. It's just something that I guess captures the American I don't know if it's the freedom of it. I don't know if it's and you kind of see recurring themes in westerns over and over again. There's a clear good guy, a clear bad guy. It's all about, you know, that lawless world and how people dealt with it. I found this to be a very top-heavy genre. Like I I probably I couldn't list 10 Westerns I love, but these three are among my like top 50 favorite films. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I tried to pick ones that I really loved, but that also broke out of that box of when you think of Western, you think of John Wayne and there's, there's probably something about it being uniquely American and the fact that Hollywood started in California Mm -hmm. and just kind of, I mean, I have a feeling that like Western stories were really big at the time period that movies took off. So even in books and things like that, Yeah, I would bet that there are probably more Westerns in terms of a genre than there are any other genre type film there's because in the 30s and 40s they made so many westerns i don't know if i agree with that <laughs> more you think there are more westerns than comedies yes more we- really hold on wow. hold on no uh, well not repeat comedies. that you mean like more more than <laughs> did you think about this more than you said private well, detective movies or <laughs> no more than horror there are more westerns in horror movies. i don't know absolutely not Oh, no. Like, if, if you count Jordan's 26 Zatoshi films, Zatoichi, then in the 30s and 40s, I mean, they were pump, pumping out, like, 20 to 30 of these a year. You're kidding? Well, they were pumping out 20, 30 movies. They weren't all Westerns. They were all Westerns. The Zatoichi they, they were, movies are not Westerns. You're saying studios made nothing but Westerns? I'm saying 60% of their output. Are you, where are Westerns. you getting this from? Are these, are these real <laughs> stats? Or are you just throwing I mean, them out? If, any, if, if any of the four of us know stats off the top of their head, it is giving. It is giving. No, I don't Well, know. he I'm can say stats. It's not... Doesn't mean they're true. <laughs> well, you all may be surprised by this, but I really do love the Western genre. Why do you love it? Uh, I think it's because, as been well documented in our previous 25 episodes, I just love big pictures, widescreen and mm-hmm. large vistas. And this, it's hard to make a Western without it looking good. Yeah. Yeah. There's a beauty to yeah. them. And there is kind of a there is kind of a black and white, too. I think we're attracted to definitive good and evil. It and, is and generally you do frequently good guy, see guy. that. Yeah. You, you see that played out pretty well. All right. Well, having said all that, let's jump into one of the greatest uh, Westerns of all time. Gibby, take it away. <laughs> all right, here goes Gibby. My number oh, three man. Western pick, the 2011 Academy Award winning animated film, Rango. Rango Unchained. Arr! 
those directed, record scratching. Yeah. Directed by the visionary director Gore Verbinski. That's what it said in the previews of Gore Verbinski's last movie, Visionary Director. It features a voice talent of Johnny Depp as Ringo. So Ringo tells the story of a domesticated gecko lizard who lives in a small lizard aquarium by himself. His only friends are wind-up fish toy and the torso of a bob- Barbie doll. But his lonely life quickly shattered when... His aquarium falls out the back of a station wagon traveling across the Nevada desert and shatters on the road, leaving him with no choice but to head into the desert. All right, Lance, your <laughs> first pick. <laughs> but can we just apologize to the, anyone that is within earshot anyone of this that we're Western starting? And, Have you seen Western starting Did you watch point? Ringo? No, I can't watch a, <laughs> okay. a, a movie about a domesticated gecko and feel good about myself. <laughs> Okay, go ahead. Keep going. So in <laughs> the middle of the this. desert, <laughs> he meets a weird lady lizard named Beans, voiced wonderfully by Isla Fisher. Beans takes him back to a quiet little western town called Dirt. I There's, love I think it's... I wonder if it was Fisher? Isla, too. I, don't think, I think it's Isla. Do they not say it Did in I the movie? Isla? No. Oh, that's... Well, I'd, I'd rather talk about the pronunciation of her name than this movie. But I feel like you got as close as you could to Pixar without actually Pixar. Too. Well, Pixar, I don't think it's made a Western. Uh, no, they haven't. If they no, had, well, Woody is a Western this is the kid. only non-Pixar, non-Disney film of the last twelve years in the past to win <laughs> to win the best animated Oscar. Okay. Wow! So huh. once he gets back to the small town, he concocts an epic backstory of bravery and comes up with this name Rango and becomes sheriff of the town. Rango learns that the town's verge of dying because the water is almost used up and it's up to Ringo and his new group of friends to figure out what is going on. So I was very hesitant to put this on my list. I wonder we why. were also hesitant. <laughs> not it? hesitant enough to not put it first. <laughs> it's one that if we picked movies that I think you'd like, I think you would like it, in fact. Well, yeah. remind, remind us not to do that episode. Yeah. Then. <laughs> I had it on my list, took it off, had it on, put, took it off. Then there's somewhere in the ether of the text message world where there's a group of texts between the four of us where these guys were not so nice to me. But as, a, of those. as opposed to right now? <laughs> So, but after watching it again this week, I am glad that I kept it on there. I mean, I still loved it. It's fresh, it's funny, the animation's gorgeous, and it has all the hallmarks that you need in a great Western. A posse, rides across a burning sunset, beautiful wide vistas, a high noon shootout, and the second funniest campfire scene after Blazing Saddles. Marshmallows remind me of going camping with my daddy. I could eat them all night long. Of course, he did make me cough them back up again for breakfast. This one time, I coughed up an entire Dalmatian. That ain't little. I coughed up a whole tribe of pygmies. They started looking at me weird. I remember them. They was quite friendly. I found a human spinal column in my fecal matter once. You might want to get that looked at. I I guess I, I didn't get a chance to watch this, but... I guess I'm just perplexed. This is one of the best westerns you've ever seen. That's what I'm I'm struggling with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess there's nowhere we can okay. go from there. But okay. I mean, I really I, I wish I kind of, I wish I could have watched it. Uh, yeah, I remember it there being a uh, like a Chinatown. There's a kind of there's a China, Chinatown homage. The mayor of the town has. I mean, that's one of the greatest westerns. Blocked off the water to the so city. It's good that they paid homage to that. <laughs> <It's a> Chinatown. <laughs> <laughs> but it takes place in LA. That's about the only Western thing about it. I did. I saw this film uh, in the theater with my son when it first came out, and then forgot about it about two minutes after stepping out of the theater. 
<laughs> Which is, and, and you know, it was, it wasn't bad. It was just kind of there. Yeah, again, and, that you know, doesn't mean the, the movie's way, bad. Right, in the a, way that a lot of these non-Pixar animated movies are, especially in that I think it's a period. lot better than a lot of the non-Pixar animated films. It was trying something new and trying yeah. something a little more adult. It's quite adult. Yeah. In fact, I mean, there's swear words in there. I wanted to watch it with my girls this week and uh, I read The Parent's Guide and <laughs> I'm just not sure it was made for a two-year-old. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. It's not. It's made full, for Full frontal adults. gecko. Oh. I did. I was reading in the trivia this film that they did like base a lot of things in it on classic Western tropes that come from a lot of the movies we're going to yeah, talk about. Yeah, there's a whole so. character called the Spirit of the West. It's basically Clint yeah. Eastwood. He yeah. dreams that he's talking to him. Well, hey, starting out strong. Can only go up from here. <laughs> Something interesting about this, you know, in most animated films, the actors do their voice work independently of each other in a sound studio. But in this one, they rented out a rehearsal space and they acted out all the scenes and had and they were mic'd up during it. Hmm. Yeah, that's not that interesting. <laughs> I think, that's, I think that sounds cool. Yeah. I so think so. It'd be fun to be there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Lance, your first uh, Western that we're going to talk about. If you've never seen the film, you've definitely heard the score. My first film tonight is Sergio Leone's 1966 classic, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Oh, I can't believe we're starting with this movie. Right, guys? You really want to <laughs> really go there? Join me? Uh, yeah. I thought you were going to do the joke of, like, he mentions the score, and then you, you like, play, like, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Song that's not yeah. clearly not. What is that? Double seven, man. Anyway, <laughs> it stars Clint Eastwood leaving Cleef and Eli Wallach. The three men's lives intersect, sometimes in partnership, sometimes in conflict, as they chase down the legend of buried gold in a cemetery. We just did our part threes episode uh, last week, and I'd argue that this film is probably the only part three that is superior to its two previous films, uh, this being the final film in the Man With No Name trilogy. The first two films are definitely not prerequisite viewing to this one, as the films seem to have very little in common, apart from the fact they have Clint Eastwood in them. I think what I love about this movie is how it just sort of wanders around to various stories, but somehow never gets boring or loses your attention. The search for gold is the underlying plot line. The film cuts away from that for long periods of time, and not only does this not distract from the treasure hunt element, but it actually seems to make it better. And by the end of the nearly three-hour runtime, we feel like we've gone on a journey with these three men that was truly epic and went all over the map. Do you want to disagree with that? I, three hours long? I hate this movie. What? Yeah. Isn't that weird? That is weird. That is weird. I don't want to hate this movie, but I hate it. I don't like any of the characters. I don't I don't care who gets the treasure. I don't I don't feel like there's any reason to pull for any of them. They're just and Well, I, I there are definitely reasons to not pull for one or two of them. I'd say all of them. And okay. I also without having seen The Phantom Menace, I'm going to make an argument that Tuco is the Jar Jar Binks of westerns. <laughs> no. Yeah, that Tuco's guy's great. So annoying. Uh, okay. Well, I I want I really I think I'd seen this movie when I was in college and I hadn't seen it since and so I watched it a couple weeks ago and I I just hated it. Huh. I felt like it meandered all over the place. There was nothing to relate with anybody about. I mean it's it's cool. I will also admit that I think Tarantino and and the effect that like the influence that this movie's had on Tarantino kind of ends right up for you. retroactively ruining this movie for me. <clears throat> Well, if I'll I'd seen it in 66 or 67, whenever Fair it came enough. out, I would have been like, what the hell is this? This is well, this is mind-blowing. I'll let you argue with its 8.9 IMDb score. Boo. Yeah. That film is subjective. It is. That's fair. Yeah, you don't have to like it. I think what I love about it is the, these three personalities and characters, because they are different. Whether you like them or not, they're oh, very different, different. And the way they kind of play off of each other. I feel like, Lance, all three movies you picked today, I'm 
going to have the same response to, which is I've seen them all mm-hmm. and I loved them all. And I barely remember anything about any of them, which is going to make for some great podcasting. <laughs> yeah. Like. That's same thing I said about Ringo. Well, here's something yeah, I remember I about good and the bad and the ugly. It gets interesting. 72 minutes in. <laughs> I remember really. So why is there one hour before that? I don't know. I don't think that's true. I think there's some really cool stuff that happens before that. There is some cool my, stuff my that happens, but plot wise, 72 minutes in, you finally are like, Oh, there's a hook, but then they meander from it again. My memory that does serve me says, Oh, this was, this was a cool movie. Like you mentioned, like it's mm-hmm. like, it's like fun to watch. It was, and it's got this, it's got a like texture to it. Like it, it's very gritty looking. Mm-hmm. It's a movie I watched. I feel hot while I'm watching it because it's so, I mean, that, like turned <laughs> that's on. same with Clint Eastwood, like in his face all sunburned. Mm-hmm. It's like, you just feel that. And yeah, it's yeah. so good at making you feel these things and what it must've been like to be, you know, it's awesomely shot that lots of extreme close-ups that are fun. Where did this fall? Tons of style. Where did this fall kind of in the spaghetti Western, you know, lit? Like, is this kind of halfway through that whole scene or is it towards the end? It's towards the end. Well, I think so. I mean, again, it's the third one of these and I don't know how many spaghetti Westerns there were when it really stopped. Explain to the folks out there who have never heard the term spaghetti Western what it is. Uh, It's like Rango. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, A spaghetti Western is reference to a group of films that were made American Westerns, but they were shot in Italy. Hence the name Spaghetti Western. They were shot there because it, it was cheaper. Um, there were studios out there that were willing to do it. And so a lot of times what you'll see in some of these movies is there's some dubbing that happens where things look a little bit off. But mm-hmm. it, I, I, it, that never bothered me. It never it never took away from the films. And some cool Italian actors. And that too. Yeah. But at this point in his career, Clint Eastwood, it was kind of a, a has-been. He'd, mm-hmm. he'd been on, uh, was it Gunsmoke? He was on, he was on a TV show. And he was kind of like Hollywood had kind of kicked him out. And this is how he sort of rejuvenated his career by going over to Italy and making these films. And that's what turned him into Clint Eastwood. Which is funny to me because I, I love Clint Eastwood movies and I think he's a fantastic actor. And I, this he's so stiff in this movie, which I know is partly the role, but it's also just. Well, he's, I mean, he's mysterious. We don't know much about him. Again, he's the man with no name. Right. He has a different name in each of these films, but he's the same character. Mm-hmm. So we don't, we don't, we never learn that much about him. And I, I get how that could bother some people. It never bothered me. I like the mystery behind it. And again, you, you know, you talked about the story. Again, the story does meander, it wanders mm-hmm. all over the place. It's weird to me that I liked that about it because usually that would drive me crazy right. but this movie does a lot of things that shouldn't work that just do for me my first western that i want to talk about may not exactly be a western so an eastern might be a better description <laughs> a 2000 <laughs> a 2008 korean film that takes place in 1939 manchuria which was a japanese state around the time of world war ii that bordered mongolia russia and korea it's a mix of comedy western ultraviolent gangster movies stylish martial arts movies and indiana jones style adventures often in the same scene The film is the good, the bad, the weird. It starts on an amazing train robbing sequence where we meet our three protagonists, Park Chang Yi, who's the bad, uh, complete with a modern day K-pop mullet (laughs) on the train to steal a treasure map. And then Yoon Tae-gu, who is the weird, is there to rob the train and inadvertently comes across the map instead. Finally, Park Do-wan, the good, is there to capture Chang Yi, the bad. And what follows is a trace across the Manchurian desert as the good, the bad, and the weird all compete for the map uh, and chase each other. It was interesting. I'm looking at this film. I was I started watching it a few days ago. And I was like, is this where's this set? And so I guess there yeah. are large stretches of 
of China that look like the American West. Yeah, uh, I, I guess, guess kind of like Mongolia, and it's that area yeah. that's all desert. There are a lot of characters in this film as bandits, gangsters, and even the Japanese army eventually get involved. But it's the three leads who you fall in love with over the film. The good will always be chasing the bad. The bad will always be bad. But with the weird, you get the idea that his soul is still in the balance and could fall into either camp. And as you learn, he wants the treasure so he can retire to a quiet farming life. The movie is over the top and zany and so much fun. At the time it was filmed, it was the most expensive Korean movie ever made. And it's no surprise when you see the gigantic 15 minute desert chase scene in the end. Which is basically Fury Road. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it feels like that. We talked last week about Indiana Jones and longing for less CGI and more stuntman in a truck. And you get that here with some full-on Spielbergian comedy action adventure set pieces. I have a deep love for these kind of kitchen sink films whose filmmakers throw all of their influence on screen at once. Uh, And it doesn't always work. Even this film feels a bit long and overstuffed. Um, But you could say the film itself is described by its title. A lot of good, a little bit of bad, and all weird. Yeah, I I started watching this. I I wasn't able to finish it. I stopped watching it the first time because I I just, it was just too much. I couldn't. It's it's like Gremlins 2. It's it's a great comparison. It was just the, it was a long action sequence that just, it just got so excessive and kind of like. Sometimes it felt like 40 minutes long. Yeah, I was just like, what are, what are we doing here? And so I just turned it off. And then the next night I tried it again. And this time I foolishly started it at like midnight. And once it slowed down and found its pacing a little Mm -hmm. bit, I started to get more into it. And then I fell asleep. So I I found this movie starting to get its footing about halfway through. And I want to, I want to finish it because I felt like there was something there. I just, I I need to finish it out. I I watched this one directly after watching Good, the Bad and the Ugly. And I was really excited about it. I love Korean movies. I thought it was going to be really, really fun. And and in, in a lot of ways it is a ton of fun. There's just I felt completely uh, overstimulated yeah. through a lot of it. But it did something that Good, the Bad, and the Ugly didn't do, which was give me a character to pull through. And it took... I don't know, an hour and 40 minutes before I found somebody to pull for, but it... Which but one did you pull for? The weird? Taigu, the weird. Yeah, yeah. There's a scene where you actually become somewhat sympathetic with him when he saves some children from a bad guy. Yeah. And then In he, a really funny way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't like the... Oh, you didn't? No, no, I didn't like that at all. <laughs> uh, I felt like the comedic aspects of the movie were awful. Yeah. But I found him sympathetic after that. And then you really are... You're pulling for him for that and because he's such an underdog. Yeah. So the, the rest of the movie ended up being pretty exciting for me. But ultimately... I was I was pretty disappointed. Yeah, and I agree with those comments too. It's definitely overstuffed. It's definitely too long. But that's part of the of the charm of it too is that they just put all of their loves on screen, and you can tell that they have a real passion for the stuff and really loved making the film and all that kind of comes across. I just think it's lots a real of love making take. in the film. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the year this came out. You raving about it and putting it on the end of your You're list. You're about to start analyzing the year that it came <laughs> <Yeah>. out. <laughs> All right, Jordan, your first Western. So my number three pick is not a favorite, I don't think, of many people sitting at this table. Do you regret putting this movie on your list? I don't regret putting this movie on my list at all. It was behind Star Wars, probably my favorite movie as a a kid. And it is Young Guns from 88, I think which I was seven. I mean, it was perfect, perfect mm-hmm. timing. Did you see this when it came out? Not in the theater, but I had a friend whose house showed it's movies Commando like guy. this. And so, yeah, Commando Guy. Thank okay. you. Was it rated R? Yes. Mm-hmm. Directed by a guy who I've never seen any of his other movies, and I'm not sure I want to. But this movie starred, I mean, in 88, some of the coolest young actors, if not all of the coolest young actors, <laughs> other than the Corys, who I didn't think were that cool anyway. <laughs> well, that's what I was saying. Um, this film felt like it was made by a studio head who grew up loving westerns and wanted to make one, but yeah. also noticed his teenage daughter was buying 
buying like teen magazines <laughs> with like Ralph Macchio on the cover. It's like, Except if only I could combine these two things. But Ralph Macchio is not in this movie I know, for the record. I it's know. it's even more awesome. People like Emilio Estevez, Kiefer Sutherland, Lou Diamond Phillips, who was always my favorite, mm-hmm. Charlie Sheen. Chuck Sheen. Oh, man. Uh, and some of the other guys are really cool too, but Dermot not cool Maloney. enough to remember their names. And then, uh, and whose nephew is this guy? Casey Simesco. Well, it's funny you say that, but he's actually in a ton of good movies. He is. He's yeah. in the future. Yeah. yeah, he's been in a lot of stuff. That's he's funny. in Three O'clock High. Yep. It could be Western. But this movie is super quotable. Has really, I think, super memorable scenes. My favorite being the peyote scene. Dermot Mulroney. I mean, I probably think of these lines. I don't know, once a week. <laughs> It's amazing. He just shoots. <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland's character. I feel. I, I, feel, I love all the characters, and I've I've heard some complaints about there's no character development in it. But I don't. I don't care. It's, I think they're great characters. I, I think it's a really interesting story. You got people like Terrence Stamp, Jack Palance. It's a. It's an awesome cast. I did, did you did you say what it's about? No, it's, it's about, about some English dude out west who takes in all these young men and teaches them how to read. He's like Professor X, the X Men. Yeah, yes. It's like he has all these kids he brings into yeah, this these special like school. Bandits and, and, yeah, and you don't really find kids. out why or what his backstory is or why he's doing this. Yeah, like, but they kind of creepy in a way. You know, so, you know. And they they kind of uh, mention that. They do. He's kind of make fun Palance. of it. Yeah, it does make fun of him for it. But he he does that, and then he's he's there's some dispute over the land that that he's on, and Jack Palance's character who wants Terrence Stamps land ends up having him killed and he's politically tied to the sheriff and the basically goes all the way up to the president they're always trying to get word to the president about what's going on out there and so the boys the regulators decide to take matters into their own hands they become deputized and it's their story and Billy the Kid played by Emilio Estevez who's amazing um, is that where regulators mount up yes I think yes. it is yeah oh, not think that, that that's is. where it is Warren G all yeah, that yeah, yeah that's <laughs> Regulators. You regulate any stealing of his property. We're damn good, too. But you can't be any geek off the street. You gotta be handy with the steal if you know what I mean. Earn your keep. Regulators! Mona! I remember liking it as a kid and I was kind of hesitant because I was afraid it wasn't going to hold up. And I started watching it and the opening theme song has a saxophone in it. And I was like, oh no, that ain't, that ain't good. Music is not great. Well, it's better what, than the sequel, though, where Bon Jovi did all the music. Oh, yeah. He went down in the blaze of glory, though. So, yeah, so I, it, this is, and this is kind of a classic Jordan criticism, but the mu- the music kept taking me out of mm-hmm. this. The, the the end song, it sounds like the end of like a Say by the Bell episode. Yeah. It's so bad. <laughs> but, but, but there was something there, too. Like, I loved the story of this group of kids and the way that Billy the kid is kind of almost kind of perverting them and turning them down kind of a dangerous path. It's a really interesting story. But he's also really I mean they were already together mm-hmm. as a as a, a, a group that was close knit and defended each other, but he kind of comes in and just like heightens that. There's this great scene where Chavez, played by Lou Diamond Phillips, tells a story of how he's the last person of his tribe that they were all killed by Sheriff Brady, I think. Mm-hmm. He's he's giving it as a reason why he's leaving the group and he's going out west. And mm-hmm. he talks about the sacred hoop. I'm the last of my clan, the last of my people. If I die, and I'm not afraid of dying, Chivato, 
The sacred hoop is broken. Now I have to go west and make my people live again. Charlie, you come with me? You ain't saying much, Dirty Steve. Because he ain't got much to say, Charlie. Oh, Steve understands the meaning of the word pals, don't you, Steve? So you got three, four good pals, well, then you got yourself a tribe. There ain't nothing stronger than that. We're your family now, Chavez. You walk away from us, you break our sacred hoop. We got to stick together, fellas. It's the only way I see it. And to me, that's so powerful. And I think it was when I was a kid, hearing that was powerful. And watching this movie with, with my best friends growing up. Like it was, it was really powerful to think about us as a tribe and having a sacred, tru- uh, sacred hoop. And Weird. I still love. Uh, so I think, I mean, I'm obviously very nostalgic about this movie, and I see how it doesn't hold up. And the music is terrible, but it's grandfathered in for me because I'm mm-hmm. so used to right. it. Uh, do you feel like we have a sacred hoop? I do. Yeah, I think yeah. we're a tribe, kind of in a hoop. Yeah, I loved this movie as a kid, and it kind of did that '90s thing, which I guess is technically '80s, but you know, where it's like you've got all these characters, and like one's like the knife guy, and one's the sharpshooter, yeah. and one's mm-hmm. the serious one. Like, and is like I love playing into that like mm-hmm. even oh, yeah. even as a kid like i remember collecting book series and stuff and being obsessed with like the trading card aspects totally. it, it was like, like it was like they all had to pick a weapon like all the weapons <laughs> right. were laid out on a table yeah. it's like all right i call the knife like no two guys could have the same weapon or something <laughs> right. well it's like it's the ten, teenage mutant ninja turtles yeah, fun. yeah. you know right. and it, right. i think it, it's what starts teaching us about character and things like that when we're young and I, I think it makes it much more interesting than if they all just had two pistols i'm gonna um do a little spoiler here Ooh. but the scene where charlie sheen gets killed was mm-hmm. shocking because yeah. it's like halfway through the movie and I remember mm-hmm. as a kid watching I was like I just assumed he was going to come back somehow like right. maybe he'd been wearing a bulletproof vest or something <laughs> but yeah, that was stunning yeah. and get, they kill him off and, and, and up his, to that his point, performance of getting shot is also yeah. stunning <laughs> the way he says Billy Billy I said quiet Billy I don't need that kind of talk Billy what are you talking about Billy they, they, he got, apparently was getting made fun of by the rest of the cast the way he said Billy oh he, so he just went so bad that's too bad because I think he's so good yeah, yeah. but up to that point it's interesting because him and Emilio Estevez are kind of fighting for the soul of the group. Mm-hmm. He wants them to become more straight-laced and law-abiding. Estevez wants them to all just kind of go crazy and get revenge, and, mm-hmm. and that's how that battle gets solved. So, I, I, I think it's a really, really fun movie. I remember the end being much more dramatic and big, and it's really just kind of short. And But as a kid, all that slow-mo, it, that slow-mo has not aged well. But as a kid, when Billy the Kid jumps out of that, chest after being thrown from the top mm-hmm. window i mean that was yeah. just that was the most epic thing i'd ever seen mm-hmm. as a kid I, I wanted to be that yeah. we can go throw you out of a there was there no, was a big, really a big part of that of longing for what that group had as, mm-hmm. you know growing up as like suburban kids and stuff oh, yeah. yeah and look at who your friends were yeah we jumped yeah, out we of windows we jumped out of windows and boxes all the I time was, i was trying to say negative thing we were in a hoop it didn't work <laughs> All right, give me your number two. So my number two Western is the 2015 debut film from John McLean titled Slow West, starring Michael Fessbender and Cody Smith-McPhee. Slow West takes place in the late 1800s, early 1900s, sometimes in the West. And Smith-McPhee stars as Jay Cavendish, a skinny young man from Scotland who's come to America to travel west to pursue Rose, the woman he loves, who's recently fled Ireland with her father. Or I guess Scotland, if he's Scottish, huh? Yeah. Recently fled Scotland. They're <laughs> not the same place. Details, yeah, details. They're a little different. He starts out in this journey all alone, but soon requires the help of a jaded former bounty hunter, Silas, played by Michael Fassbender. Silas tells Jay he'll help him 
get to his love for $100. Along the way, we come to learn that Rose and her father are wanted for murder with a $2,000 reward, dead or alive. We also learned that maybe Jay's love for Rose was not at all reciprocated. So the story follows the two of them as they travel along the desolate west through mountains and desert. You know, I really like this movie. Um, That's good. Yeah, that's good. That's a great start. It's on my list. Uh, It's got a quirky sense of humor, or Mm -hmm. at least a very dark sense of humor. And I also just wanted to add a movie in here that was kind of smaller, and I think it got overlooked a couple years ago when it was released. It kind of felt like it was like a darker Wes Anderson or something. Did you get (laughs) that? Definitely had the quirky, cutesy Wes Anderson. Yeah. I don't remember this coming out at all. Why is it called Slow West? Because he's moving slowly across the West, I suppose. Mm, That's a stretch. Hmm. Um, Is it a play on slowest? <laughs> Probably so. Uh, but it's got some great visuals in the movie. There's some awesome scenes. It's got some great actors. And it's just a little off kilter. And uh, yeah, I like it. So <laughs> I have more. <laughs> okay. I, I agree with most of that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Jordan, I thought the, I thought a lot of the acting was great. I thought it was really quite striking and and beautiful in how it was shot. I thought the story was awesome. I loved the story. So I just think they like? I just think they threw it away. They threw away this awesome story with this this like cute, quirky, yes, dark, but just like the tone of it just absolutely ruined the movie for me. Huh? I liked the tone a lot. That's what kept me going through it. That and the constant score. The score didn't bother me. It was really like constant. I had never even heard of this movie, and I watched it last. Last week and I loved it. It's very grounded in reality in a way, but then in another way, it doesn't feel like it's grounded in reality at all. And I think that's it's the difference between the tone. It explores some really dark themes, mm-hmm. including the story of this guy who probably goes through the worst instance ever of being put in the friend zone. Um, and I, I found that really yeah. fascinating. I, I'm going to go into I want to go into spoiler territory a little bit here. So if you haven't seen it, you might want to fast forward through this part. But towards Wait, the end, of I th- haven't seen it. Does that mean I can fast I don't, forward? Well, you we're supposed to watch it. So <laughs> I don't really have a lot of sympathy. It does these really weird things that. And I get how things like this might have driven people crazy, but there's a scene where he finally finds her and she doesn't realize it's him and she shoots him in the heart. And then he sits down, sees her kiss another guy, and then a bullet hits a jar of salt. And then the salt goes into his wound. Literal salt. Like it was just like little things like that. And I mean, I get that that's not realistic. And I get, and that's why I say it's not as grounded in reality. And I was okay with that. Like I liked the little clever winks like that. Like I was rolling my eyes already so much by that point. And are you laughing? at all or are you like you're like heartbroken at that or? point no it's oh. it, it the film gets very heartbreaking at the end yeah. and and, and the, the way it closes out i mean it's one of the most tragic characters i think i've ever seen in a film the end of it is heartbreaking i wrote well, it in here it's super cruel but it's also i mean in a way it's really dark and funny. it's heartbreaking but it's also a little confusing i mean it's am i supposed to think this guy was an idiot is he a hero i, I didn't <laughs> quite know what i was supposed to feel about him and i was okay with that yeah uh, it, it, it's a very unfair ending in that someone else gets what he wants and and in that regard, it's also very, very realistic, and I like that about it. Hudson, you you raised something earlier. I, I don't know how this movie flew so under the radar. I, I'd never heard of it, especially till you, not from Hudson's radar, because I think he would love it. Yeah, I think he would love this movie. To. But it, and it wasn't. I mean, there are reasons that movies like this don't, you know, get a big get big press. Maybe they don't have a big star. This did have a big star. This had mm-hmm. Fassbender in it. I don't really. I, I'm still not clear why I'd never heard of this before. Well, if you'd listened to our excited about, you would have heard about it because it was in one of our episodes when I talked it about it. You were excited about it. Yeah, huh. I remember cool. you being excited. Uh-huh. After about watching it or before watching after it? After watching it. Huh. Lance said it was very realistic and there is very realistic. It actually shows you how hard it would have been to live in this time period because this kid is not prepared at all and just like a day-to-day life, how 
treacherous everything was. That's true of most westerns, I think. I watched some of these movies. I'm like, God, what a nightmare that <laughs> mm-hmm. would be. There's you get a some... toothache. You have to like rip your own tooth <laughs> out. It's awful. <laughs> There's something at the end of this where it shows everybody who had been violently killed during the movie. Yeah. There's a silent like 30 seconds where it shows like a photo of everybody that died in their final position. And I don't think I've ever seen that in a movie. That was before. really interesting. Yeah. It's all the way back to the beginning. Not everybody that just died mm-hmm. in the final I like shootout. that. I like that. And I don't quite know what he was doing or saying with that, but it was very interesting. I liked it too. That's the thing. Like all the things you're saying you liked, I, I also liked. It sounds like you liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I liked so much about it. It's just, I it would have been so impactful if I'm, the tone had been different. I'm not, but you tend to get wrapped up in smaller, I mean, not that tone's a small thing and I'm not, I don't take this as a criticism. I'm t- it's personal. Well, but you do tend to get wrapped up in things that maybe a lot of other people would overlook. Sure. And this is a film that's fraught with those landmines where it's things that I could see. You, I'm not surprised you didn't like this movie. Yeah. Uh, interesting tidbit. The director was the lead singer of one of my favorite bands of the early 2000s, the Beta Band. Really? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. interesting. I had no idea. All right, Lance, your next Western. Okay. The stranger wanders into town, haunted by a past he can't escape and looking for peace he'll never find. He possesses a skill he's vowed not to use, but comes across an innocent family in terrible danger and knows he's the only one who can save them. This is a plot device that's played itself out over and over again throughout film history, popping up in various Wolverine stories. In fact, scenes from my next film show up in the recent movie Logan and are talked about. And then it was also done most recently in the excellent Ryan Gosling movie Drive. But I'd argue it was never done better than in my next film, George Stevens' 1953 classic Shane. It's hinted repeatedly that Shane was a violent gunslinger, although we're given very few details of his past. Only that he's running from it and wants to settle down. The film. You, I'm going to interrupt you here. Yeah. Do you think that his outfit was a very way odd. Of, was a way of like hiding from being a guy a violent gunslinger? Because I can't imagine like a badass violent gunslinger wearing that. Outfit. What what he wears is odd. It, it's very odd. It looks like the way a little boy would have right. dressed up for Halloween exactly. as a cowboy. It's strange. <laughs> but for some reason, it never bothered me. And it that may it that may be the explanation. It doesn't ruin anything about. for me. But it it it. Very peculiar. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good point. The film opens with Shane traveling through the Wyoming mountains where he comes upon the Starrett Ranch, a homestead family that, with a young boy named Joey. Shane stays, begins helping out around the ranch, and becomes an idol to Joey. As he gets more acquainted with them, including an intense attraction to Mrs. Starrett, he also gets acquainted with the ruthless cattle baron Rufus Riker, who is hellbent on running the Starrett's and the other townspeople out of their homes. This film came to my attention back in 1998 when the American Film Institute listed it as number 45 on their list of greatest American films. It was nominated for Best Picture and is on Roger Ebert's Great Movies list. I fell in love with it the first time I saw it, and the plot device of the reluctant hero is something I've always loved, and that's exactly what Shane is. The story's simple in a way, but incredibly complex in another because Shane doesn't say much. We're left to guess what's going on in his head, and this creates a complexity that wouldn't have been there if Stevens had given him long monologues to recite throughout the film about honor and courage and whatever other platitude you want to throw out there. I believe it's that lack of talking that makes the film work and characters who are never fully expressing what they're thinking. Shane was played by Alan Ladd, a man who was on the smaller side and frequently had to be photographed at angles to make him seem taller. His main adversary in the film is the evil gunslinger played by a young Jack Palance who makes a particularly terrifying villain. But to me, the character who steals the show is Brandon DeWild, who plays the young boy Joey. Kids can be kind of annoying in films, and this is one of the greatest childhood performances I've ever seen. His innocence is so believable. The way he worships Shane is so honest without being clingy. What if that's because he didn't know he was in a movie like he just they, <laughs> I could have been part of it honestly I don't yeah, know maybe um, he, he, if, he, he is a great really dumb this, kid if he would have yeah. thought that this movie is something else it's awesome you liked it oh man I loved it but I, I mean I love a standoff 
movie Mm -hmm. between two groups of people. I love that you know that something's going to happen and you don't know what. Something's going to explode at some point. And the way they set it up, like you're talking with Shane not really saying much. Like I was sure that Shane and Wilson, who's the Jack Palance character, Mm -hmm. had some past that we were going to find out about, which... I don't think that uh, ends up it happening. Never, well, yeah, if, if it, it does, it, they never right, mention it. Right, right, which is really fun, and we can kind of project whatever we want on it. The fight scenes in this movie are insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're awesome. They're really long and really powerful, especially one near the climax where there's all these wild or domesticated animals around. like these, <laughs> And they, they'll just cut to a shot of like, 40 bulls that are breaking out and they'll do these wide shots where there's a bull breaking through a fence in the background (laughs) of these two men fighting it's completely (laughs) insane you hear all the sounds of these animals at the same time and it just some some of the most powerful fight scenes i've ever seen yeah they're pretty cool the final scene of this film is probably its most famous and it's this tragic and kind of haunting scene where joey is yelling for shane to come back never been able to show you if you'd have seen him Bye, little Joe. He never even cleared the holster, would he, Shane? I've got things for you to do! And Mother wants you! I know she does! I went back and watched that scene a few days ago, and I kept watching it over and over again, and I started seeing things that I had never really noticed before. Like a bull breaking out in the background? No, not so much of that. It's a different scene. Joey says things and gives certain looks that make it unclear what he knows and what he's thinking. So, for example, he says, Mom wants you. I know she does. And I that, that line had always just kind of been a throwaway line to me. But then I started thinking, well, it just, did he figure out about the relationship? Is now this is what he's using to get Shane to come back? There's also some debate. And it's obvious that the husband also knows he seems pretty on. yeah yeah there's it, some looks he gives to shane and to his wife there's some debate there was a movie that came out several years ago called the negotiator i don't know if you guys have heard of it kevin, kevin, kevin spacey before he became you know what he is now and samuel l jackson they get in a conversation about shane in that movie where they get in a debate about whether he dies at the end or not mm. and i'd never heard that before because oh. it, it's not made clear that he dies but then when you watch the film now and you see him riding away, he seems slumped over. And so now, then I started to wonder, it's made clear he's injured before he rides off. Was he leaving just to spare Joey watching him die? Wow. There's also a moment when you see Joey's face as if he's seen something very troubling while he watches Shane ride off. And I'm wondering, did he just watch Shane die and he put it together? So there's this scene is so complex and amazing and I just, I love it. I actually wrote a message. Roger Ebert used to have this answer man column where you could ask him questions about movies and I actually wrote in to him huh. and asked him you know what do you think about that is there validity the possibility Shane dies he never responded uh, I'm oh, still weird. waiting on a response uh, you'll get I'm it. sure he'll awesome come back story. to me yeah, anyway yeah I don't know His why he hasn't responded <laughs> yeah anyway little known facts about this film <laughs> here comes the joke <laughs> Didn't watch uh, the movie, made this, wrote this joke. I know, I have seen Shane. It's just been yeah, so long, I, I don't remember. Too. Yeah, His name was originally Francois. And so they, and they shot some scenes where he's calling out. He's like, Francois, Francois. And they just didn't think it sounded <laughs> Western enough. So they changed it to Shane. That's so, certainly not Western That's enough. a well-written joke, Hudson. <laughs> I thought it was weird, too. 
That would have been really funny. The name of the movie is Francois. <laughs> Looked it up. The cover, just a cowboy, Francois. Uh, you, this you really got to dig deep to find factoids like that. <laughs> yeah, you do. You won't find this, that anywhere on the internet. Right. This movie did get a... Oh, was it nominated or did it win for cinematography? Mm, I'm not sure. It's outstanding looking. Mm-hmm. And the, the backdrop so much is, the I guess, the Rockies? Uh, yeah, it's Wyoming. It did it's, win Best Cinematography. It did, which is somewhat strange for a Western to see in the background, like blue snow-covered mountains mm-hmm. rather than the mesas and plateaus. Man, pretty sad story about that kid. Yeah, Brandon DeWild tragically uh, died. I think he was he was in his late teens, early 20s, I think. And he, he died in a car wreck. I think it was in Denver. He was on the way to a play he was in. He was mm. killed. Dang. So very sad. My second Western is the 1969 Western Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Butch Cassidy, played by Paul Newman, and the Sundance Kid, played by Robert Redford, are two best friends who rob banks and trains. After robbing the same train for a second time, they are chased after by a mysterious group of five men on horseback across the desert. And this chase lasts pretty much the entire movie. Who are those guys? Who are those guys? They're beginning to get on my nerves. Who are those guys? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and in a fascinating choice, you stay on Butch and Sundance the whole time, so you never even see the guys who are chasing them, even though Butch and Sundance seem to have a pretty good idea of uh, who at least two of them are. So the two decide that they want to make it to Bolivia, where Cassidy believes money and gold is flowing like it did in Gold Rush, California. But once they arrive there, they find a very different reality. That's uh, hilarious. Yeah, and one of the funniest lines after they arrive to dirt roads and livestock. He's all Bolivia can't look like this. How do you know? This might be the garden spot of the whole country. People may travel hundreds of miles just to get to this spot where we're standing now. This might be the Atlantic City, New Jersey of all Bolivia, for all you know. Now, here is a movie that has high stakes, is one of the maybe top ten most entertaining movies I've ever seen in my life. Mm -hmm. It's hilarious, but it's, it's able to balance all of that and make a great movie. Unlike some other movies that we talk about. <laughs> well, that, that's what I wanted to get to. There's this thing movies do today, and like Michael Bay is the worst offender of this ever, where they, they feel like they need to throw comedy in at the same time like an action scene's mm-hmm. happening. And it's it's so frustrating because the jokes aren't funny, but also because they're joking, I can't take the action seriously. So right. it all cancels out and the scene right. just ends up yeah. sucking. And they aren't like in character. This right. movie is a master class in how to blend action mm-hmm. and comedy because it's it's hilarious and it's it works because they never wink at the camera or stop the film to tell us a joke. Like right. the humor comes yeah. organic based on their frustration. Just like we just you know the Bolivia scene, it makes sense he would say that, but it's still hysterical. It's nobody's laughing or thinking anything's funny, but it's hilarious. Well, how, also, how come you're so talkative? Hmm? It's my favorite line in the movie. Uh, <laughs> how come how come you're so talkative? You're just naturally blabby, I guess. <laughs> Well, I, I think the reason it works is because that's who these characters are. Like, right, you've built up a whole movie of these two in their witty rapport back and forth, mm-hmm. and yeah, so it works. And they're, they're two best friends, and you don't really know much about them, and they don't really know much about each other, and they never really seem to let on about their honest fears. Like even in the very end, uh, when. You know, it's very clear what's going to happen to them. They're still joking with each other, and that's just what the relationship is. But, but they don't think they're joking. I think that's what makes right. it work. Like, if you were to ask them, like, if I was standing there laughing, if I was in that scene and I started yeah. laughing at what he said, they'd be like, what's, what, what's funny? <laughs> right, yeah. They don't get it. What's a joke to you is just normal conversation. That's to them, how and they that's communicate why it works. with each and other. It's, and it's pure confidence and bravado, I think, out of the two of them in this genuine way, where right. neither of them, they both thought that they were going to get out and go to Australia. Yeah. I yeah. don't think there was any question in their mind <laughs> right. what yeah. was going to happen. Right. Yeah. And it, it, 
that's not what happened. Yeah. But I think the film really trusts the audience in that way. And the filmmakers really trust the actors that they don't have to go into these like deep monologues, but they allow them to act out in more of what they do than what they say. Right. Uh, even one of the more emotional moments in the film is just a still photo of Sundance da- uh, dancing with his girlfriend mm-hmm. and Paul Newman sitting there at a table by himself. Mm-hmm. And it's this powerful moment that's not even a moving picture. It's just a very a still photo that takes to a montage. Which, of a which they part do of pretty often in this movie and it's mm-hmm. so weird and I don't understand how it works. Did you read and why they did it? I have no idea. Why about they the raindrop that. scene where they're riding the bike together no. like that well, kind of that's thing? that's a whole nother animal. Yeah, we'll but get, we'll no, where, they, where they just do the still pictures like well, and the, that part's in a montage of when they move to Bolivia, right? Yeah, uh, they're on their way, yeah. And and it's just, it's a montage of, of still pictures yeah. that look old timey and I think totally add to the, right. to the both the tone and the And make historic. it feel bigger because they seemingly, um, I don't think that they build all those sets. I think that they digitally, I mean, not right, digitally, right. but cut them out. And put no, them right, right. Did you did you read why they did that? No. Did you see it? So it's really interesting story. So they were filming like Hello Dolly on the set next to it, and so George Roy Hill, the director, thought that the studio would let him use the set, and the studio said, "No, you can't use the sets. So we want to keep these secret because his movie was coming mm-hmm. out first. So he snuck them onto the set and just took photos of them <laughs> on, really? on various places. <laughs> That's amazing. Put them in the movie. One of those happy That's why accidents. they didn't have to. They didn't. I, could, I think it probably helped their budget too because he just took sure. photos of them there. Uh, yeah. Let's talk real quick. I, I personally find the music by Burke Bacharach to be distracting even though it won best score and best song for Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head Raindrops are falling on my head And just like the guy's feet are too big for his bed Nothing seems to fit Those raindrops are falling on my head And they keep falling in a bizarre but still endearing scene where we see Butch entertaining uh, Sundance's girlfriend, Etta, on a bicycle, uh, which just plays pretty silly to me. But you also, it is the introduction of this character, and you've barely seen her spend time uh, with Sundance, other than a kind of great reveal that you think that he's this bad guy with her, mm-hmm. and it turns out they're role-playing. But it, it's, it is a great kind of love triangle in a really unique way, where at the end of this bicycle scene, they have this conversation, what if I had been the one you met first? Uh, mm-hmm. Would we be together? And, and that plays through the whole movie. The song there is so jarring. Yeah. And doesn't make God. any sense, but it works. I mean, usually that would ruin a movie for me, and it did not ruin this movie at all. But I couldn't help but wonder, would it have been better if they'd used a different piece of music? And and where in the process did this piece of music come in? Like, where did they make this decision? Did they have another piece of music in there? And I they were like, that you know too. what? We, we need to make this more montage. It was just a risk, and I don't know why yeah. it was a risk they took, and I, I can't explain why. It works, but it, it it doesn't distract from the film. It seems yeah. like he's just buddies with Burt Bacharach. He's like, hey, I got <laughs> this song. It is. Yeah. But there are a lot of risks taken in this movie. The opening, I guess really two scenes of this movie, I feel like are a huge risk. It's a Western, and it opens as maybe one of the most claustrophobically shot things I've ever seen. It's all close-ups. Mm-hmm. There's no Poker big scene. wide shots. There's Very no dark. establishing yeah. shots. Yeah. It's all in sepia tone, yeah. and you don't know what's going on. I mean, yeah. it just feels but like... But I always felt like he did that in order to contrast when you do open up. Sure, and then yeah. it's this beautiful, yeah. wide-moving, expansive shot. Yeah, uh, William Goldman is one of the great screenwriters mm-hmm. of all time. He wrote this script, and the way he introduces Sundance and opens up mm-hmm. the film is so immediately gripping and incredible, yeah. where Sundance is playing poker with someone. Uh, I think an insult happens one way or the other, and then the guy finds out he's talking to Sundance, and he gets terrified all right. of a sudden. It just yeah. That was such a cool way to start yeah. the film yeah. and set the tone for this character. But then the film contradicts it, where Sundance isn't as scared 
scary as we thought he was. Mm-hmm. And I think, that, you know, going back to the raindrops thing, I think that that was kind of why that works is because it's it's in a way telling us via the music, this isn't your typical Western. Like this is not going to be the story of two guys just going on a killing rampage and they're not bad guys. Right. So yeah. there's not going to be menacing, terrifying music. There's going to be fun music because mm-hmm. deep down at heart, that's what these guys are. They're a couple of kids having fun. Sure. Huh. Did you feel like there was a connection between that first scene and sort of the end of that first scene where the guy's trying to get them Sundance and Butch to leave and they say, we won't leave until you ask mm. us to stay, which is, I think, very similar to the beginning of Shane, hmm. where Joe is asking Shane, is telling Shane to leave at gunpoint. And Shane, I b- believe, says something about, like, I'd rather it be my choice to go. Mm-hmm. If you'll put that hmm. gun down, yeah, then, that's I'll, interesting. then I'll leave. It, it felt huh. very similar to me. Yeah, no, that's interesting. That's an interesting connection. Uh, I had never seen this film before three weeks ago. It was one of the all-time great films that, for whatever reason, I just had never watched. Uh, I, I, had I, owned I, it. I hadn't either, Gibby. Really? Mm-mm. You realize you <laughs> haven't seen most of the all-time great films. <laughs> I, there's like two. <laughs> Godfather. One and yes, two. that's one and two. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is one of the best movies I've ever yeah, seen Yeah, I mean, life. it was fantastic. I was shocked by, A, how funny it was, and B, how the humor is, feels very current. Yeah. I, for some reason, I always thought it was kind of a stodgy old Western, but it's not that at all. Uh, it's funny in both character and in set pieces, like some of the physical comedy is really Yeah, when he fights well. that big tall guy. No, no, not yet. Not until me and Harvey get the rules straightened out. Rules? In a knife fight? No rules. What? Well, if there ain't gonna be any rules, let's get the fight started. Someone count one, two, three, go. One, two, three, go. This is a great scene. Or when they they use too much dynamite on the save and it blows the whole train up. <laughs> and when when they get the job in Bolivia and their boss is constantly spitting, and if he gets the spit on himself, then he he says something like drat or I can't remember but if he if he spits successfully he says bingo and he does it the whole time he'll just do it he'll be in the middle of a sentence and he'll go bingo and then just keep talking it's hilarious all these just tiny details that they added that somehow don't distract and I feel like the structure of this movie is weird and yet it's it very still totally works. Yeah, I'd always thought that it, I, I'd heard that it ended on a freeze frame, but I always thought it was them jumping off the cliff. I thought that was the end, kind of like a no. Thumb and Louise. It would have been a pretty short movie. Yeah, I thought this is a short movie. And, and a weird ending. Yeah, it's definitely one of my favorite endings really funny. of all time. <laughs> what shouldn't be, I mean, like a freeze frame sounds so lame, but yeah. it works so well in this. And a mix of very unsatisfying, but also like totally okay. Yeah. Well, it had to. It wouldn't have fit to see these two guys get mowed down. It just, it wasn't <laughs> no. at that point in the film. It's just, again, it's like, because you're, again, you're kind of watching a comedy in a lot of ways and you're just, you're not going to watch them get riddled with bullets all right. of a sudden. It but I wonder, I wonder if that was always the plan. I wonder if they ended up freeze framing earlier, like if they shot more than that and then freeze frame there because that's what felt that's good. Best. That's a good question. Maybe. That would surprise me, but it's possible. Uh, yeah. I just don't know. Yeah. I mean, there's something that's so unique about that ending and the whole movie being that unique makes it seem like it's intentional. Yeah. It's very unique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We can ask old Bobby about it when we see him later. Is Robert Redford coming over? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who are we seeing? Weird. <laughs> the film was nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture, and won four, including Best Screenplay, and it's number seven on AFI's Top Ten Westerns. Well, that ought to do it. Jordan, number, you're number two. We're going to go off the... Uh, Reservation? Yeah. Way uh, off. Way, way off. Although not that far off because it was <laughs> shot in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Old Mexico, mm-hmm. as they would say in a Western. Mm-hmm. Be prepared to live the most wonderful experience of your life. I'll 
Alejandro Jodorowsky's film classic. I bet everybody's guessing it already. El Topo. El Topo. Which means the topo. <laughs> it actually means the mole. Also the topo. <laughs> it's from 1970, and it is a surrealistic, psychedelic, insane, spiritual romp through some sort of wasteland that seems like maybe Stephen King took a lot from it to create his gunslinger for the Dark Tower books. I couldn't come up with a line saying what this movie is about as good as IMDb could. So, a mysterious black-clad gunfighter wanders a mystical western landscape encountering multiple bizarre characters. Which I think is maybe understating what this movie is by saying multiple bizarre characters. I mean... Well, but you point out the issue. It's so hard to categorize or describe or explain this movie. Yeah. It's it, it just it, trying to give it a plot line just doesn't really it kind of almost goes against the, the spirit of the film. And I find this this movie to be such an experience like a, a thing that I just mm-hmm. kind of get lost in when mm-hmm. I watch it and I don't. So like I couldn't sit here and tell you what it was about because I don't know. And th- that's okay. It is a mystic film. Supposedly is some sort of commentary or exploration of the world's religions. and El Topo is not a religious film. It contains all religions. Man in black travels around with his nude son and then they pick up a gunfighter woman and it's it's an insane movie yeah i gotta be honest i'm pretty glad i skipped this one well (laughs) when i when i say this you may change your mind Uh, to me this movie has always felt like somebody handed yodorowsky a stack of mel brooks outtakes (laughs) and said hey do you think you can make something like semi-serious and thought-provoking out of these and and i'd say he did that it's funny Huh. So maybe that makes you want to watch it. <laughs> maybe it doesn't. We're, I mean, it, it's fine. I mean, we're a few minutes into this segment, and we still have not really said what the film is about. I mean, you read the description, yeah. obviously, but and and I think if you've seen the film, you understand why. This yeah. is definitely the most unique Western I've ever seen. El Topo is not a Western. It goes far beyond any Western. But it's very Western. It is. It is. And uh, Yodorowsky, he's an interesting guy. and He's not really talked about much anymore. And his success is very much based on the time period in which he was making films. I think you described it as surrealistic and psychedelic, mm-hmm. which was that was a big thing in the, the late 60s, early 70s. Oh, yeah. And it's a big reason why he came to notice, because putting it through that filter got the attention of people like Andy Warhol and John Lennon, who actually, I think they bought the film and, yeah, John and they're the Lennon, reason they got distributed. John Lennon convinced a friend to buy it yeah. and distribute it. I heard about this film for years and I was glad you picked it because it finally gave me a, a reason to watch it. My first thought on it was, I don't think I could recommend this movie to many people. Like, <laughs> no. I, I, because it's so hard to digest and even by the end I was getting a little restless. Films like this are always tough because they don't give us a firm footing and they don't draw things up into easy conclusions and there's no context for anything and we're not sure what we're supposed to think at the end. So it does have this kind of element in it that a lot of people would consider maybe being pretentious because mm-hmm. it's very heavy on symbolism and just oddities. Having said that, the rep reputation the film gets is that it's just a bunch of crazy symbols and images, but I don't think that's true. I did see a clear plot line about this man who abandons his son and gives into pressures that force him into abandoning his morals and then regrets that and tries to redeem himself. And in that regard, it has a very, that's a very common Western narrative. Roger Ebert had this in his great movies list and he said something interesting, which is that in every frame, Jodorowsky includes something that doesn't make sense. And you talked about one earlier. The naked kid. Yeah, it's so weird and unsettling settling on the very first frame because mm-hmm. he he rides up and he's just, just this naked little boy and he's he's his, fully decked out in black yeah. i mean it, everyone almost else, every everyone else is covered. covered the box looks really funny because it's a like a shadow figure and a black thing carrying an umbrella and then just a little naked boy on yeah the which is yeah. actually yodorowsky's son 
Right. And the movie opens with a scene where El Topo makes his son bury a picture of his mom Mm -hmm. and I think a toy of some sort. Jodorowsky later on apparently felt terrible about what he made his son do in the course of making the movie. Mm -hmm. And and so he he took his son out into their backyard and had him dig a hole. And in that hole that he had him dig was like a toy and something Mm -hmm. else. And basically said, son, you're you're eight. Yeah. Now you can be a child again. Yeah. Yeah. Which, Which, I mean, Jodorowsky's, I think, a brilliant, thoughtful Crazy special person. person. I mean, crazy. Yeah. I mean, he stars <laughs> in, in a number of his own movies mm-hmm. because I don't think he could find anybody <laughs> else to play these parts. El Topo is miraculous and terrible. You know, if you can get through it, it's it's a really rewarding experience. It leaves you with a mm-hmm. lot of just fascinating images. You oh, just, yeah. you, you got to go into it with the right mindset. One of the lasting ones for me is he comes across these three like bandito guys. Mm-hmm. And I don't even think they say anything. They kind of like ride their horses around El Topo and his son for a while and laugh at him. And then mm-hmm. they come to this standoff and one of the bandito guys blows up a, a latex balloon, which mm-hmm. is certainly doesn't make sense. In right. The, in why the does he have period. a latex balloon? Why, why is <laughs> this red. his way to... He blows it up and he... He lets it float to the ground, but there's a tiny hole in it. And so it's doing that thing where a balloon squeaks (laughs) as the air comes out. And the idea, of course, is that as soon as it stops squeaking, that's when they draw their guns and shoot each other. Right. uh, It's a really fun scene. It's things like that. There's just never context for anything. Mm -hmm. Like the first half of the film actually, in a way, has a very clear plot line where he has to defeat the four best gunslingers in the West. Mm -hmm. El Topo is bloody. But you don't know why. You don't know where they are. You don't know who these gunslingers are when you meet them they just get increasingly bizarre and and you don't re- you know nothing about this character you don't know why he needs this you don't know why it, and, and it's the woman he meets that pressures him into doing it we just never understand a lot in it right and so again if you like visuals if you like story this might not be the best movie for you. <laughs> but if you like visuals and images and i think that's why it appealed to a more artistic crowd like yeah. the andy warhols of the world when it came out so very visually striking jordan plot keyword check <laughs> self-immolation child shot in chest it's violent child Song. Shot in chest? Yep. Like shot in the chest? Mm-hmm. Oh, that happens in the movie? I think so. <laughs> Somewhere. <laughs> Inbreeding. It is sexual. Incest. El Topo is monstrous. Human branding. And cruel. Huh. Yeah. Well, all those things happen. Not the, it's positive. Not the craziest. Those are things I, yeah. I generally hashtag I love those. when I'm looking for movies. <laughs> All right, give me your number one Western. So this next movie, my number one Western, I have been really excited to talk about since the beginning of this podcast. This is one of the few movies I've always had on my short list of definitely want to talk about, and I'm glad we get to. This is one of the few movies where you and I, I feel like, just like really agree on a movie. I hated it. Yeah. <laughs> no, me too. <laughs> this is the 2007 remake of 310 to Yuma, directed by James Mangold, starring Christian Bale and Russell freaking Crowe. And probably what's my final, <laughs> my first or second favorite performance of his. That's very specific, Gibby. <laughs> oh, and also my not. first or second, but not. <laughs> 310 to Yuma tells the story of Dan Evans, played by Christian Bale, father of two and down on his luck farmer who's a week away from losing his land to the bank. He's a former union shoulder who lost his lower leg in the Civil War, has no respect from his old his son or his wife. Russell Crowe plays notorious outlaw Ben Wade. He's a subject of many dime store novels and widely famous for his quick gun and bank robbing exploits. When Dan inadvertently helps Ben get caught and arrested, Dan finds an opportunity for some quick money and a way to save his farm by joining a group of men hired by the big bank to get Ben Wade back to a train station and on the 310 to Yuma to face trial for his crime. Why would Dan do this? All broke and unable to barely keep his head above water? Well, let's let Dan tell you. Damn years. 
That was we it. have to make the 310 to Yuma. <laughs> <laughs> so Dan sets off with five other men to get Ben Wade and the 310 to Yuma. Annoyingly, his 14-year-old son follows them along on the journey, and the rest of the movie is them trying to get him there. So I love this movie. Mm-hmm. It was my favorite film of 2007, and if I had to make a list of my top movies of all time, it would probably make it. Let's go with like number 24s. Wow. Okay. <laughs> no, even higher. My list of top 1,000 yeah. movies t- of all time. It's in there. <laughs> I think it. it's just a great Western. It's a kind of a more morality tale too it's about stubbornness and family and even not judging a book by the cover and what i love about this movie of each character has so many different facets and like russell crowe he's not a totally bad guy no and christian bale's not a totally good guy and he's stubborn and he's doing this for his thinks he's doing what's best for his family but it's obviously not i i think every character in this movie is fascinating and sympathetic and and really really powerful i, I love um Russell Crowe's sidekick in this movie. Yeah, uh, Ben Foster plays the sidekick Charlie Prince, who has, who may or may not have a thing for Russell Crowe in the it's movie. Hard, it's hard to say. Yeah, it's definitely not hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely does. Uh, I think this is one of my favorite Christian Bale roles. Yeah, he's. Great I, I think he he was he was sort of made for this for this role. It's, yeah, this was this was my favorite film of 2007 too. It, it does a couple of things that were that are not easy to do. The first is it's a remake of an old 1957 film that's better than its original. Um, the second is it's a film that just gets better as it goes with mm-hmm. an ending that then tops everything that's happened up until then mm-hmm. we talked about what before about what a powerful device it is when a, like a bad man finds his soul and this film is interesting because like you said we never hate crow's character but we do hate his gang and it's that hatred that makes the end so satisfying and it really shouldn't be satisfying when you think about what actually happens at the end but in a way everyone kind of gets what they want mm-hmm. it really becomes a story of a man trying to redeem himself you know not only to his family but to himself and the way the bad guy can't help but admire that to the point he even becomes a part of it is so awesome and fun to watch so this is a great pick yep good job Gibby congratulations congratulations (laughs) Uh, Hudson have you seen this movie I have seen it yeah it seems like a movie you would really like a man man with a code that's the one thing I would say about it is it's just the kind of perfect storm of like character and story and like a ticking clock and it's just it like I feel like you could take this story and make it in any way and it would work like there's just so Mm -hmm. many components that just make it filmic Mm-hmm. You, you say ticking clock and what makes the final 10 minutes movie are literally a ticking clock. So you have 10 minutes to get him from the hotel room to the train. and it's, It plays out in real time, too, yeah, doesn't it? It plays out in real yeah. time, and it's fantastic. I mean, there's a scene in there where Dan should obviously just let Russell Crowe get away. And he's asking, why don't you just let me go? And he tells him it's because... I had never been no hero, Wade. Only battle I've seen. We was in retreat. My fuck out. Shot off by one of my own men. You try telling that story to your boy. See how he looks at you then. On a technical point, this movie has some of the best sound mm. design I've ever heard. Crank this movie sometime with a good sound system. Is, and it's uh, one of the best up, I've ever up heard. Up for best sound. The, uh, it's Oscars amazing. Day. Also had a great score.
All right, uh, Lance, your number one Western. The Searchers, John Ford's 1956 film, follows the story of Ethan Edwards, a Civil War veteran returning home who embarks on an obsessive journey spanning several years to find his young niece after her family is slaughtered and she's carried away by a Comanche tribe. Ethan struggles with his own hatred of, well, everything, primarily an intense dislike of Native Americans and his fate of forever wandering without a true home. I was actually introduced to this movie in a weird way. I worked at Disney about 20 years ago, and they had a, a ride called The Great Movie Ride that closed recently. One of the films that was featured on the ride was The Searchers. And so in the in the kind of the opening area, like they would play the trailers to all the films. So I saw this trailer like a hundred times before I finally saw the film. If ever there was a film that captured two talents at the top of their game, it was John Ford and John Wayne and The Searchers. The film was a major influence on later directors and films, including Taxi Driver. And certain scenes were lifted directly by George Lucas and Star Wars. And that, of course, is the scene where John Wayne flies a TIE fighter. <laughs> <laughs> the film was ranked number 12 on AFI's list of greatest American films, Roger Ebert's Great Movies list, and perhaps most impressive, the prestigious Sight and Sound poll where it is ranked number seven all time. In that regard, it is probably the most critically acclaimed Western of all time, but why? The film has so many components that could be discussed. The photography, the performances, the story, and I actually struggled in prepping for this film because there's so many layers and elements that could be discussed. And that's what makes it a movie I've loved coming back to over and over again. But what's always struck me most is how fearless it is in dealing with its subject matter and how it doesn't ever settle for the easy gimmick. Most films would have turned this into guys looking for niece, can't find her for an hour, oh wait, he found her, roll credits. Instead, Ford adds an element here where Ethan hates Native Americans so much that it becomes less a search to save his niece and more a search to find and kill her because he views it as an act of mercy. He'd rather see her dead than integrated into Comanche culture. So it not only kicks the plot up a notch, but it does so in a way where the outward journey has an equally intriguing internal journey for our main character. He's not just trying to find his niece, he's trying to find himself. At its core, that's why the film works. We're horrified by the things Ethan does and says, but we can't hate Ethan because in certain moments, he seems to show us he doesn't like being this way either. He's battling the horrors of what he's seen and experienced and trying to be a better man. And with simple looks and tender moments, Wayne plays Ethan in such a way that we know there's a good man who wanted a different life hiding behind the angry exterior. No John Wayne impression? Nah, it's just so easy. Well, I da-da-blah-blah. Blah, blah. Just... Well, but I was just Wayne. <laughs> Who does a great one is Groovin Gary. I know. I know. We play that clip from the Beaver trilogy. Mm. One of the things about this movie is it, like you said, it's so iconic. I mean, basically any Western after 1956 includes that shot of uh, an open door and somebody walking in or out of it with a beast behind it. Yeah, that's, and I wanted to say that the film opens and closes with two very famous shots done in reverse of one another. And it was that kind of shot that made John Ford such a beloved director. The first shot sees a door open from the inside of a cabin and out into the beautifully shot brown and red tones of the Monument Valley Desert, which was Ford's favorite shooting location, and he made a lot of films there. And through the frame, we see Ethan approaching. And then the final shot is of the same door, this time closing, as Ethan, who's fulfilled his promise but knows he can never go home again, walks away from the cabin and back out into the desert. It begins and ends like a storybook, and taken together, those two shots give us a quick synopsis of his life and of someone who comes and goes and is forever searching for something he'll never find, which makes the title a very appropriate double Oh my God, meaning. that's where they got the name! Shut up. Is that your John Wayne impression? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, this, of course, is one of those movies that I saw a long time ago and don't really remember that much. But, yeah. you know, it's probably great. <laughs> AFI's top 10 Westerns. Number one. Yeah. You nailed it. You did it. People you win. Love it. I did it. Do you think he referenced Cheers. that list before he chose his movie? 
Yeah, definitely. The frame posters hanging on my wall too. So <laughs> I kind of, I, I kind of love this movie. Fan in the world. I was then going to defend you by. Oh. <laughs> I was going to defend you to my own. He's also wearing his oh. searcher shirt. <laughs> like an a hole. He changed. <laughs> there's this. There's this funny. The weird thing too. I was talking about the shots. There's this thing he does at the end where he. It's and I know we're on a podcast and it's hard to see, but if you can watch the shot, it, impossible. Actually, he grab <laughs> he grabs his arm like a little kid and kind of just stumbles away. And it's such a sad like sweet moment I don't know it, it, it goes back to that kind of internal innocence and the way that he kind of depicts that by just the way he walks and, and holds himself it's like it's really I don't well, know it's he's really... got that line he's like I guess I'm done with the searching <laughs> <laughs> is that your that's the worst John Wayne yeah, was that wow, one worse than one before done with the searching <laughs> Oh, that's good. <laughs> I love this movie. I have nothing to add that you haven't already said. It's, oh. it's incredible. You said it all beautifully. I need to watch it again. Thank you. I watched this a couple nights ago with my girlfriend, and she was pointing out that like just how beautiful looking it is. Mm-hmm. And I've always known that, but I, I, I've i always been so much more focused on the story and the character of him and his hatred and the, and the search. But I, you could really turn the volume down and just watch the scenery in this Well, movie. that's really it's something gorgeous. that Gibby brought up at the very beginning of this episode is just how gorgeous all of these movies are. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes western yeah. so great in a lot of ways is you're just these wide shots of beautiful mm-hmm. vistas as vistas. Gibby yeah. is prone to saying Vista MasterCard <laughs> <laughs> alright my number one western is the 1992 film directed by and starring Clint Eastwood Unforgiven I remember watching this movie maybe around the time that it came out and liking it the character of William Money is so perfectly created and his story and arc has stuck with me all these years. But rewatching it in the past week for this show, I realized this movie is a masterpiece and ages flawlessly. Mm-hmm. Unforgiven tells the story of William Money, a former outlaw who gave up his life of crime and liquor when he fell in love, settled down, and started a family. But after his wife dies, he's approached by a young cocky gunk slinger calling himself the Showfield Kid to join him in hunting down some cowboys who cut up a prostitute or Whores, as they say a million times in this movie. Yeah, a lot of whore. And uh, in exchange, they'll receive a thousand dollars. Money initially turns him down, but in desperate need of money for his two kids, he eventually agrees with the help of his best friend Ned Logan, played by Morgan Freeman. However, the sheriff of the town where the prostitute lives, Little Bill, played terrifyingly by Gene Hackman uh, in an Academy Award-winning role, decides he's going to lay down his particular brand of law on any assassins coming into his town. To me, Unforgiven, and, and I feel it's something that's not said a lot about it, is the greatest love story where the entire love story takes place off screen. The way that Money talks Mm. about his wife, the way that he sacrifices for her, the way that he takes care of their kids, although he does leave them at home alone to fend for themselves Mm. for weeks at a time. (laughs) They look about 10 years old. The little girl's like five. Hey, those are going to be some tough kids. (laughs) Well, also it was a time when most people died by the time they were five, so he figured they were kind of playing with house money at that point. They'll be fine. Unforgiven also does an amazing job of making sure no characters are black and white. Even the smallest characters are so full of depth. Uh, Even you as the audience fall into a gray area is you can't decide if you want money to fall off the wagon and exact revenge in the end or you want him to respect his wife's wishes for his life. I don't know if you guys remember but westerns were not a hot commodity in 1992. Well, except everybody because everybody was still just watching Young Guns from four years before. (laughs) Uh, And in fact the script was first written in the mid 70s and Eastwood first read it in the 80s but wanted to age up for the role and it paid off for nine Academy Awards winning four including Best Film and Best Director. Eastwood's first Oscar it's hmm. number seven on AFI's top 10 Westerns, and it was considered the kickoff point for the modern resurgence in Westerns. Eastwood pulled off something pretty incredible, not only giving us one of the best Westerns in 1992, the 
same year Sir Mix-a-Lot gave us Baby Got Back. Never really liked Best Westerns that much. Feels like an Econo <laughs> Lodge, basically, to me. But giving us one of our best films, period. I feel like people don't talk about how funny this movie can be, but that duck of death scene cracks me up. <laughs> Does it really? I didn't, oh, man. I didn't laugh at that scene. Oh, I yeah, think it's so funny either. when he says duck of death, and then he, he keeps saying duck of death. Well, yeah, but then he that gets seems amazing. so... There's so much in Gene Hackman's performance that's scary. Oh, I agree. Mm-hmm. Because he's so subtle with it until he's not. And that joke, him calling Duck of Death, is that for me. Where it's like, it's terrifying. Every, the, each time he says oh. it, it gets more and more terrifying. I think it's really funny. Yeah. Not in a way that takes me out of it. Yeah. The Duck of Death. Oh. It's the Duke. Duke, Duke, Duke of Death. Duke. You always were a hell and Jesus with a pistol, Bob. But seven of them, boy. And you protect that woman and all that. How, how the hell do you do that? Uh, let me see. Uh, it's generally considered desirable in the publishing business to take a certain liberty when you're depicting the uh, the cover scene. It is for reasons involving the marketplace, etc. So, well, Mr. Beauchamp, from what I read this here book, the writing is not that much different than the picture. Well, I can assure you, Mr. Daggett. That the events that are described in there are taken from the account of eyewitnesses, sir. Eyewitnesses? Yes, sir. You mean like the duck himself, I guess? <laughs> they, the duke. Duck, I says. I really like mispronunciation jokes. It's one of my favorite things. <laughs> <laughs> Never happens in this show. <laughs> I watched an interview with Eastwood about, about this film, and he talks a, about how a lot of it was aimed at taking kind of the myth out of the Western. And up until the end, it does a lot of that. It deals directly with this idea of legends that grow up around people, whether they're true, how they're often not. First off, the final scene is among the most badass things ever mm-hmm. committed to film. But it, but it's also odd because it seems to then throw the movie right back into myth territory. Where like if it had been consistent with itself up to that point, he probably would just gotten shot in the head and died. Now that would have sucked too. So I'm glad that it went back to myth because myth is is way more interesting than than reality. Uh, but see, I would argue that final scene it's badass, definitely, but. It doesn't play in like a, a stylish Western way. I mean, it still is not, not at all. Than, yeah. Not at all. But what he pulls off is almost impossible. And I guess that's what I mean. Like one dude going in and basically but he doesn't. I see. I remembered the movie that way, and then rewatching it, he, he there's only like six people he kills in that final scene. Yeah. Everybody else runs away. And you'd think it would like work up to well, the fight with with little Bill, and it'd be this big thing at the end. But he shoots him first. Yeah. And then he just kind of lies there until they have a final. Well, and that's interesting. Th- them running away may have been a testament to the power of legend like they probably yeah, could have taken true. it down right but, yeah but they were so afraid of the story right. of him that that superseded the reality of him yeah but i did think about that when we were at the beginning of the episode we said what makes westerns westerns and we talk right. about you know white hat black hat and that's not what this movie is at all it's actually the opposite of that where right. all of them are wearing gray hats yeah this this film has a lot in common with shane and that it's about this guy who who wants to be one thing but he's on this collision course with who he really is and that scene works at the end because we're seeing him be become what we've wanted to see him become the whole time, who right. he was, everything yeah. that we've heard about him up to that point. So much of the, the powerful scenes in this movie to me are watching people reconcile things. And there's these slow, there's like tender moments where the, the Schofield kid is almost crying as he's reliving 
the first person he's ever right, killed. Right, yeah. And watching him deal with the reality that this is now a thing a, he has A guy to who up until this point has been so cocky, yeah. refusing to admit that he can't see, right. and, and he's finally showing vulnerability. And again, he got obsessed with the legend, yeah. and then he the legend became reality, and it scared the hell out of him. And so yeah. again, it goes back to the theme, which is, I think, that demarcation between the myth and what really happens. Hmm. There's, a, there's a scene where Money and, and Ned are talking. and Ned, you remember that drover I shot through the mouth? His teeth came out the back of his head. I think about him now and again. He didn't do anything to deserve to get shot. At least nothing I could remember when I sobered up. Well, like I said, I ain't like that no more. That's right. I'm just a fella now. I ain't no different than anyone else. No more. And he, and he doesn't believe what he's saying. Hmm. He's saying it because he's trying to convince himself. And the film, in some ways, is kind of a tragedy because it's this guy who wants to change and he just, this is who he is. This is who mm-hmm. he's going to go back to being. I love what you said about it being this off-screen love story. That was so, hmm. that, that, that's so true. And you're kind of like, you, you ache and hurt for this guy because he loved this woman so much. And, you, and the fact you never see her makes it so much better. Yeah. Um, but this is a great film. It's one of yeah, my favorites. Yeah, and I, did, I found myself really torn in that scene where he starts drinking again because mm-hmm. you're like, oh, yes, I want those guys yeah. to pay. But also you're so saddened for mm-hmm. him as a character yeah, going he's, back he's to lost that place. Again. Yeah. yeah. Great pick, Hudson. Got anything? Congratulations. Congratulations. <laughs> All right, Jordan, number one Western. Number one does not come from the American West at all. Uh, written by an Australian, I believe directed by an Australian, and taking place in... Australia? Very good, Gibby. Directed by John Hillcoat, written by one of my favorite musicians of all time, Nick Cave, also a novelist who writes fabulous novels. Well, it's called The Proposition. 2005. 2005. And I'm not, I'm not a person who really anticipates movie releases. I don't trust hype about new movies. I like to watch movies after all that. And this is one movie where I allowed myself to get really, really excited. I think I had just before this movie was announced, read Nick Cave's first novel, and I was just obsessed with him. And so when I found out that he was writing this movie, and it was a Western, mm-hmm. and I got very excited, and I was not disappointed. It's about three bad guy, bad guy brothers who do a really bad thing. Uh, youngest and middle get captured. Oldest and most evil is hiding out in the mountains. And the sheriff dude, played by the guy whose name I can't remember, who's awesome in everything that he's in, uh, makes a deal with the middle one, played by Guy Pierce, that he'll let the younger one go if the middle uh, finds the older brother and brings him in. And that's the proposition. The rest of the movie follows, and it includes John Hurt, who rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love this movie. It's dark. The premise of the proposition is amazing. The characters are amazing presence of flies are like a character of their own in this movie they're everywhere and sometimes they're like basically covering people there's a scene that i think is beyond perfect where the youngest brother is being flogged my good people before you stand one of the vilest most bloodthirsty villains this country has ever seen all these people are watching and it's brutal in the way that hillcoat is able to capture the people's reaction during these hundred flogs. Are they, do you count them as single flogs? I don't know what the singular Hits. is. Yeah. And you, you watch the people Floggies. just get, some of them are just repulsed the further along it goes. But there are all these flies just mm. coming from who knows where. They're and buzzing with an Australian people. accent. Yeah, every, of course. <laughs> I like, but I don't know uh, how to do that. I don't know how to do that impression. 
But I think Australia, the, the outback is something that we don't necessarily like. It's so obviously a perfect for a western, but but there aren't yeah. that I know of the, all that many western movies set there. I think as far as modern westerns go, this is this is up there. Apparently, with three apparently instead of cowboys, they're called bush rangers. Sure, <laughs> in I mean, they're in the bush. bush. <laughs> it's not as cool. <laughs> Do you think Yahoo Serious would have made a Western? <laughs> he probably did, actually. He probably did. I don't um, know how to answer that question. <laughs> Paul Hogan, maybe? Kangaroo Jack. Yeah, this is, this is a really fun setup for a film. I, I did. You mentioned Nick Cave. I want to talk about him for a second. What an impressive, creative talent he is. Man. So he, he's interesting. John Hillcoat, who directed this, calls him in because he wanted him to do the soundtrack because mm-hmm. he's a musician. Mm-hmm. And the next thing you know, he's asking him to write the screenplay. Well, he These had done two. John Hillcoat's maybe first movie called Ghost of the Civil Dead. But it's just right there's it? such disparate skills. Like yeah, he, uh, This has to be one of the first times in history the composer was brought in and then ended up writing the screenplay. <laughs> right. I've never heard of that happening yeah, before. What a jerk. And, he, and not only that, but he wrote the thing in three weeks. Yeah, he wrote the whole script that fast. And it's incredible. I, I've read interviews with him where he where he talks about writing this. Mm-hmm. Nick Cave's a very difficult interview subject and and person in general. Even though he's very he's just he's a complicated, fascinating mm-hmm. person. And he just is really pretty nonchalant about it. He's just kind of like you know, I just thought this story would be interesting, basically, and so I wrote it. He he he's a very disciplined artist. He has an office. I believe outside of his house, he goes every day for eight hours and, and he either writes music or writes a novel or writes a screenplay or does whatever. He just has to sit there and do some sort of work. And sometimes things like this come out of it. Well, you look at his IMDb page and it has all these different credits that should not exist under the same person. <laughs> it's very strange, mm-hmm. but it's it's really impressive. You mentioned before the the flogging scene of people being, more, the audience being more and more disturbed mm-hmm. as they watched this happen, which is kind of how I felt watching the movie. Sure. It's not all always an easy watch no and you know i'm not a big i'm not a big flogging guy not a big torture guy <laughs> not into rape a whole lot Mm-mm. so th- this for me was just a little too much of of that kind of stuff to really enjoy it even though i enjoyed the style and i loved the storytelling and great performances but not one i would revisit i've revisited it many times and i think it, well you're a big flogging guy i am yeah. huge huge I think one of the things it does best is that we start out sort of from Guy Pierce, the middle brothers, where he's our character, like he's our who we're sympathetic to, and we and we like him. And it doesn't it doesn't shift away from that. But through the throughout the film, they're able to sort of add characters that that are opposed to each other that you are sympathetic towards. So the guy who makes the proposition, the sheriff, whatever he is. I mean, I feel like for the first half, you don't like him, but then it's in that flogging scene and his own reaction to it and his own trying to defend his own proposition and trying to stand his ground and then becomes an anti-hero, I guess. And it's the people above him that we're now mm-hmm. opposed to. And I think it does such a great job of mixing those good and bad lines. And Yeah, great pick. In a 2008 interview, Guy Pierce said this was his favorite film of the movies he's been in. Wow. He was in he's, L.A. Confidential. He's wow. fantastic. He was in The in Time Machine. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we don't see him much anymore. He's a memento. He, he, he did, uh, yeah. Another guy that was in this that kind of got really big was Ray Winstone. Where is he? He's I haven't really seen great. him in anything. I don't know, but he Indiana is really, four. really good. Well, he was in Indiana 4, and again, what was Indiana 4 was right kind of around this time, wasn't it? It was not too long after. Yeah. Years. He but was he in was, a he couple got, of the Thor movies. Yeah, he just got huge all of a sudden, mm-hmm. and then I haven't. I don't feel like we've seen him in a while. He's doing a lot of TV. Is too. he okay? I don't know. If anyone from the Winstone family can call us, just let us know <laughs> yeah. how he is. We'd appreciate it. If you could call into our call-in show. Yeah, 1-800-FFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFFF
before the end of time. Uh, we each picked. You don't know that. <laughs> Shut up, Gibby. <laughs> it's very presumptuous. <laughs> we each picked one movie for each other that the other person hadn't seen, yeah. and, and I, we think they'll like. Well, we'll see about or, that part. Or that we want them to see. That part's up for debate. We think they should like. <laughs> or should see. As with many of these episodes, like. two of us have a different idea on this episode <laughs> than the other two do. So it makes it work. Yeah, we don't ever <laughs> agree on the actual theme. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to recommend a book. It's called All Our Wrong Todays by a guy named Elon Masti. It is a story about a guy who comes from an alternate future, who travels back in time and accidentally gets stuck in our present it's a bit crazy. And, and that's do you do you commission these sorts of like <laughs> because it sounds like something I would love? Oh yeah, well, well, I I see, where do you I find see, all I these things that are just exactly like they were written for you? I know, I know. So if you have similar taste to I, <laughs> to I do. Uh, then I highly, highly recommend it if you're into um, kind of out there sci-fi that keeps you guessing while also being kind of grounded and emotional and all that. What else we got? Oh, there's a show called The Romanoffs that looked really interesting to me. Good cast. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a Matthew Wiener show. Watch it. How am I not supposed to laugh at that? <laughs> it's this really interesting take where it's like all of these ancestors of the Romanov dynasty, old it's Russian modern family. modern day? Yeah, and it's set well, today. It's, it's, a, it's an anthology show, so it's a whole bunch of different... It's not just set today. There's certain ones that take place. Yeah, it, it could be terrible. I just thought the the, the theme That's was very interesting. The creator is the guy that did Mad Men. An awesome Pretty show. good show. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I feel like I had some people in the cast that I hadn't seen around in a while, but that I really like. Ray Winstone. It wasn't Ray Winstone. Is Winston. that where he is? No, he's not, he's not there. We'll then where working. is he? <laughs> Give me what you got. I'm excited. I don't have any books. You hate books. I like movies. Oh, be excited about one of those. Yeah. Anything in the theater? Like, oh, well, this problem is, is when this comes out, it'll be months later. And no, so it doesn't matter. I'm excited about Damien Chazelle's First Man. I would really like to see it. I think he did an awesome job with La La Land and Whiplash, and I'm always excited to see what that guy's doing. Where, what's the musical element in First Man? Going to the moon. Moon River. Um, you know, that's my favorite song of all time. Is it really? Mm-hmm. Really? Moon River? Yep. Hmm. A movie coming out the weekend that we recorded this. Which, Which by, by, the, now, by the time this comes out, it could have won Best Picture. Yeah, it we'll could see. be all the awards. All right, that's our show. Thanks for listening. Yeah. How do wait, How do Western people Thanks, say guys. goodbye? They say it like this. Adios. Bye. So long, partner. Join us next week as we jump into 12 films covering Russian steroid use, surfing on teen mission trips, cheerleading competition race relations, 90s computer hacking, professional bouncer leagues, alien-possessed bicycles, three-dimensional Carcharodon carcariuses, and the complete and utter destruction of our very own planet Earth. If you listen to the show just to hear us make fun of each other, then this, dear listeners, is your episode. We'll be taking an extra dose of ridicule as we talk about our favorite guilty pleasure movies. All right, then, go ahead. But fight fair. No biting or gouging. And no kicking either. This is John Wayne. Let us know how your list differs at at fightaboutfilm on Facebook and Twitter. Or email us at fightaboutfilm at gmail.com. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. For Friends, Fight About Film is produced by the Brothers Ray in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was recorded and edited by Jordan Noel. That'll be the day. My name's John Wayne. <laughs> there we go. Let's, let's, let's do it. <laughs> Drops are falling on my head And just like the guy's feet are too big for his bed Nothing seems to fit those raindrops
drops are falling on my head and they keep falling So I just did me some talking to the sun And I said I didn't like the way he got things done He's sleeping on the job And those raindrops are falling on my head and they keep falling But there's one thing I know But that doesn't mean my eyes will soon be turning red The cry is not for me Cause I'm never gonna stop the rain by complaining Because I'm free Nothing's worrying me Topo is more than spectacle. It is an experience for all of your life. 